Thanks for choosing a 3CR podcast. Throughout June 2023, we're running our annual Radiothon, where we ask you, the listener, to make a donation so that we can continue to make great radio. Your donation will help keep us community-owned and community-controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au slash donate. And with that done, please enjoy the podcast. Annie McLaughlin here for Stick Together, a half hour of workers' stories, union news and social justice issues. We come to you from 3CR on the unceded lands of the Kulin Nation with respect to their elders past, present and emerging. We are coming to you on your community radio station on the Community Radio Network with the financial support of the Community Radio Federation. Today, we have the recent federal budget in focus. Nina, the new Economy Network Australia, recently hosted a discussion led by Matt Goodnoff, Senior Economist at the Australia Institute, that aimed to break down the budget so ordinary people could get a grip on some of the issues that affect our lives directly. First up, an overview of what the budget was about. The budget's obviously all the federal government's taxing and spending. That's about $680 billion worth of spending. But in any given budget, they only change a very small amount of that. So we're only talking about 2% of spending is actually new. So that means that 98% of the spending is the same kind of as, as last time. So we do get very excited about budgets, but it's also important to remember that, that most of the stuff doesn't change. There's only a small part that changes, and that's the bit that we obviously focus on, and that's the bit the government and the media focus on, but it's only actually a very small part of it. Um, basically, the budget predicts what's going to happen to the economy over the next four years. And the predictions that we got in this budget basically show that that they expect the economy to decline quite dramatically. We're expecting economic growth will more than halve from about three and a half to one and a half percent next year. We're expecting consumer spending in particular to be slashed from about five and a half percent to one and a half percent. And consumer spending is about 60 percent of the economy. Um, And the reason it's getting slammed is in particular around housing. So increasing interest rates and mortgage payments, but also increases in rents. And that's going to impact consumers' ability to spend, which is actually why the RBA is increasing interest rates right now. So the reason they're increasing interest rates is to try and take money out of consumers' um, spending. They're being very successful at that. And that's definitely going to slow the economy down. They're doing it to try and reduce inflation. But the reality is they're reducing economic growth quite dramatically. We're also expected, obviously, to see an increase in unemployment, as you would expect when the economy slows down. The unemployment rate's about 3.7%. The budget's predicting that'll go up to 4.25% next year and then 4.5% the year after. Now, if it goes up to 4.5%, that'll be another 140,000 unemployed people. So what were the major parts of the budget? Some of the biggest parts or the biggest changes were actually around welfare payments. So there was a lot of criticism over many, many years that some of these payments were entirely inadequate, particularly the unemployment payment, job seeker. In fact, it was well below the poverty line. And the government has made the decision to increase it by $40 a fortnight. Um, which is great, but it doesn't get us anywhere near the poverty line. To put it in context, in order to get an unemployed person above the poverty line, they would have needed to increase unemployment payments by $25 a day 
What they've ended up doing is increase it by $20 a week. They change parenting payments so that they don't force single parents onto the much lower job seeker rate until their child turns 14, up from eight. And they've also increased rent assistance by about 15%. The maximum rate of rent assistance goes up to about $94 a week. In the current climate of having to rent, $94 is not a lot per week in order to uh, to find a place to rent. But again, it's still an increase of 15%. The government basically had to walk this line between trying to provide cost of living relief to people, particularly those at the bottom who were struggling the most, but not provide enough or, or not to create a lot more inflation that would then provoke the RBA to increase interest rates further. If you just hand out money, as I say, that adds to total demand in the economy, which then can increase prices. But what they did instead was, to use an example, their their energy price relief, which was basically giving $500 to low-income households to reduce their electricity bills, rather than just giving the low-income householders $500, which they could spend on anything, they've actually directly reduced their electricity bills by $500. Why is that important? Well, when we measure inflation, our main measure of inflation is the consumer price index, the CPI. Well, in and it's a basket of goods that the average household spends money on. Well, in that basket is electricity prices. Now, for a big chunk of the Australian population, those uh, electricity prices are going to go down because effectively the government has provided $500 to reduce the price of electricity. Because the prices faced by consumers, or at least some consumers, has gone down, that will actually decrease the CPI. And they did that in a number of areas. So they also did that in childcare, which was actually announced in the last budget, but will start on the 1st of July. So childcare prices are in the CPI. The government's increasing the subsidy on childcare, so the, the prices faced by consumers will go down, which will directly reduce the CPI. They had an increase in bulk billing incentives. So if your doctor bulk bills, your doctor will get more money from the government. Um, Now, if that works, then obviously that reduces the amount of money that consumers have to pay to see the doctor, which directly decreases the CPI. And another one in the environmental area is the government um, announced that it was going to spend more money on household energy upgrades. So they're basically going to um, come up with a whole range of stuff to try and um, reduce people's energy bills by making their um, their houses more efficient, increasing insulation, solar panels and other things. But basically, if that reduces a, um, a household's energy bill, then again, that will reduce the CPI. So in education, 300,000 fee-free TAFE courses, again, reducing prices. There was uh, stuff around reducing the price of medicines, allowing people to buy two months worth at the price of just one month, which also decreases the CPI. But on the petroleum resource rent tax, for those that don't know, it's kind of sort of supposed to be a super profits tax on the gas industry except that it, it it doesn't work like that at all. So right now, we're in one of the biggest gas booms we've ever seen. In fact, last year, uh, the gas industry um, made $40 billion in windfall profits. So that's just the profits it made because Russia invaded Ukraine and the gas price went up, basically. These are enormous profits. In this kind of environment, you would expect the PRT would be collecting enormous amounts of revenue. 
It's not. It's barely increased at all. The government made some changes in the right direction. They're only going to increase the PRT by a very small amount, about half a billion a year. Just to put into context, remembering we're in the biggest gas price boom we've ever seen, here are some things that uh, collect more money in revenue in the budget than the PRT. Tobacco tax excise actually collects about five times as much uh, revenue every year than the PRT will, even after these changes. Spirits excise, fringe benefit tax collects more than the PRT. Visa application charges collect more than the PRT. And beer excise. So, you know, the PRT is only a very minor revenue source. And this is kind of very disappointing, if you like, at a time when we're seeing such a huge increase in gas prices. Obviously, the the Australian people are really missing out when it comes to PRRT revenue. You're listening to Stick Together, a half hour of workers' stories, union news and social justice issues. We are unpicking the recent federal budget with the assistance of Matt Goodenough, Senior Economist at the Australia Institute, who was taking part in a webinar put on by NINA, the new economy network Australia. This is what was said about the care economy. We first hear a question put to Matt by social researcher Eva Cox. But was there any sort of signs of private of them doing anything about the privatisation that's undermining childcare, aged care and all of those things there? I mean, they also made it fairly clear that they couldn't even ensure that the additional money that would go to the uh, wages in uh, aged care was going to go to them because they had no... They said, oh, somebody was standing there saying... Oh, it's all right. They can have a look at the six monthly review and see whether they, 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 it has been spent by the owners. I mean, I'm very concerned about the fact that we have actually really little that looks at that whole privatisation area, which is undermining a very large amount of community services and so on. And there's no, apart from additional bits of money for the age, there's no signs of what they're going to do. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, and the answer is no. Um, this government seems to be embracing um, kind of these uh, uh, private pro- uh, providing of, of these kind of care things, like you said, in, in childcare, in um, healthcare, in aged care, um, and, and also in, in disability care, the NDIS. Um, and that's a big issue because when the government is the sole payer, if you like, of these services, um, or, or, or a large part of it, like um, in childcare, because they give a, a large subsidy, it basically allows the private providers to game the system. Um, and private provision of it becomes far more expensive than if the government just did it itself. Part of the reason why the NDIS, for example, the costs are escalating so dramatically is that you have a situation where the disabled person gets a fund of money from the government in order to pay for this stuff, but they're not quite sure what those things are worth. The private provider is able to sort of game the system and increase the price. But if you think about what the alternative might be if the government provided that service, well, then the government would have an incentive to not game the system and not make it cost too much because they're ultimately the ones paying. So we've got this weird area, particularly in the care economy, and particularly um, where the government's the main provider of funding, where we have this situation where it can become really, really expensive very, very quickly 
And all of that's really just flowing into profit for private providers. And I think that's something that the government really has to grapple with. I mean, if you want to know where these problems are, you just have to follow the Royal Commissions, right? We had a Royal Commission in Aged Care. We had a Royal Commission into Disability Care. You can follow those and you can see, well, what do they all have in common? Well, the problems stem from the fact that we have all these private providers who are in there for a profit, who are thinking, well, what I need to do is I need to maximise my profit. So how can I maximise the amount of revenue I get and minimise the cost? So they're, they're doing the very bare minimum and charging as much as they possibly can for it. We did research uh, in 2022 on um, childcare where we compared for-profit providers and not-for-profit and state providers. And we found that because of this profit motive and because basically for-profit providers were taking money out of the system in the form of profit, they either charged higher prices or they provided less quality care. And that's what you see also in, in aged care and you also see that in disability care. Part of the problem also is that by doing that, they're actually removing one of the things that the voters want, which is a sense that they have some sense of ownership and commitment in the childcare, aged care, other areas, instead of having some strangers living it in their thing. So it's part of creating a sense of social cohesion yes, and absolutely. a sense of, of goodwill and local community things because people would feel they own the local childcare or aged care thing. But if it's run by some mob that's sort of actually in the USA where the money goes to the shareholders, yeah. you don't you end up distrusting government. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yep. So, yeah, um, these kind of private um, providers do nothing for social cohesion, which is something that we need more and more, particularly mm. when you look, for example, in the US, you just have to look over there and see what happens when social cohesion begins to break down. You are listening to Stick Together, a half hour of workers' stories, union news and social justice issues. We are listening to some excerpts from a webinar featuring Matt Gunoff, senior economist at the Australia Institute put on by Nina, the new Economy Network, Australia, about the recent federal budget. Now we go to the issue of housing. To get back to the direct kind of problem of housing, the amount of money they're spending in order to build more social and affordable housing is too small, obviously, um, and it's not really even going to touch the side. So while it's good to see the government commit to more spending on um, housing, they're actually only committing to build an extra 30,000 houses in 2026 over the next five years from 2026 onwards. So it's, it's a very small amount of housing compared to what is actually needed and it's not going to happen for quite a number of years. So, I mean, the housing industry probably needs a far larger and more radical shake-up. In particular, sort of two main areas that it probably needs is the government to build a lot more public housing, probably funding the states. I mean, if we go back to the sort of 60s, 70s and 80s, when the government was building lots of public housing, it was basically the federal government funding the state governments to build public housing rather than setting up sort of funds, rather than trying to induce the private sector to do it. They basically just built it directly. And that was when we saw a lot of public housing come on board. And that's probably what we need to do again if we really want to change things. The other big issue on the demand side is the huge increase in investor demand um, being driven by the capital gains tax discount in particular and negative gearing. 
they probably need to restrict negative gearing to new properties and reduce the capital gains tax discount to try and reduce that invested demand, which is basically just pushing up prices. If they invest $10 billion and only get a few percentage point returns, I mean, what are we looking at? I mean, is this is this a complete removal of the federal government's commitment to investing in public housing if it only makes a couple of million bucks a year? Is, and then what happens to it? Will it be just filtered down into the Department of Housing to spend or is it going to be going out to the marketplace yet again? The housing policy in Australia is hugely complex and the cynical part of me says it's complex to hide the, the kind of what the government is doing. So it wasn't just the $10 billion fund. There were also these complicated changes to depreciation rates and uh, de-tax withholding rates. And if you feel yourself eyes glazing over and going to sleep, just hearing those words, you are not alone, right? Um, what basically the government does is it doesn't build public housing like we used that they used to build. What it does is it tries to encourage private providers to build housing that they then rent out at um, hugely subsidised rates. Now, in order for the government to do that, they've got to make it worth the private provider to do that, right? So if the private provider is targeting, I don't know, 8 or 10% return and renting it out to somebody on a low income is only give them, going to give them a 1% or 2% return, then effectively they, the, 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 the government has to pay them, you know, 6 7 8%. Um, in order to induce them to, 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 to go out and build this house. The problem with that is, is the government could borrow at 4%, right, um, and just build the housing directly. Mm. Um, now, that's less than what they have to induce the, the private provider to do it. And what's more is, is if the private provider does it and the government's inducing it, the private provider owns the asset at the end, whereas if the government builds the public housing, the government not only pays less for it, but they own the asset at the end, right? And now, when you explain it like that, that sounds stupid. So why would the government... Why, well, so why does the government do it? Well, the first reason is, is because... It doesn't want to own the asset. It, does, it doesn't want to um, uh, directly fund um, pro, uh, public housing because then people, you know, people would see what they were doing. Um, and for some reason, that's not what they want to do. Um, and so we get this really weird kind of convoluted thing to kind of hide the fact that they're having to um, uh, induce the private sector um, and the not-for-profit sector to do this. And so that's why we have changes to depreciation rates. That's why we have changes to withholding tax. These are basically tax concessions, if you like, that, that the private providers can access that improve their rate of return, if you, if you will. Honestly, what should the government do? Well, the government should either do what they did in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and just fund the states to build public housing or, or do it directly themselves, or the government could just build it directly like they do now. So there's the uh, Defence Force housing. The government owns a, a huge amount of housing and, and has built that housing for the Defence Force as part of their kind of salary package, if you like. They get discounted housing. So the government already does this. They, they've already got that in place. You could just expand that. It would be a lot simpler. It would be a lot cheaper. 
and they would be able to build more housing and also be held responsible for how much housing actually comes onto the market um, because we would know directly, well, how many houses have you built? Well, you know, this many. Right now it's, well, we're helping fund the private sector do kind of all of this housing and maybe we're involved in, in you know, that particular house or maybe not, but you can't really see it clearly. There's no transparency in the way they're doing it. Um, Matt, would it be fair to say that that approach, that convoluted way of working, but primarily to justify to big businesses and corporate interests that they're invest, they're letting the market do the work, this is absolutely neoliberal framing. Um, and as you say, the government was happy to invest in these kinds of social services up until the 80s when we were hit with this tsunami of framing everything as the market will fix it, the market knows best, the Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher neoliberal thing. Um, so it's, it seems to me that not just the housing fund but all of these other funds are the, is really the government justifying to big business rather than the people um, that they're letting the market be involved in these kinds of initiatives that the government should just be sorting out. And we had a big webinar yesterday on um, carbon offsets and nature offsets and the um, nature repair bill. And a number of people said direct intervention to respond to climate change is the only thing that's going to work, using these market-based mechanisms to pretend that we can offset one unique ecosystem with another or appeal to the market to do eco-restoration. Um, all of these things are what some would call weasel words. Um, others might call just veering towards evil, um, just a way of keeping in cahoots with big big business, large corporate interests while not getting the job done of looking after our society and, and planet. So that nearly... Yeah, yeah. It, it's this belief that in all things markets can do a better job. Now, I'm an economist, right? I actually quite like markets. There are, there are, there are times when markets are, are really great things um, and that we totally should use it. Do I think the government should take over all the cafes um, and decide, you know, what, what flavoured muffins we have available and, you know, what kind of coffee and milk and, and whatever else? No, the market probably does a really good job. Why? Because there's heaps of competition. If if one cafe is doing a really crap job, you can walk, you know, a few metres down the road and, and try another one. So you've got an actual situation where all of the incentives are right to make sure that the, that the market is providing you with the, the lowest cost and, and the highest quality um, and you have lots of options. But in, in some areas, in a lot of areas, um, the markets aren't the best way of doing things. And, and you know, um, in particular, public housing, but there's a whole other host of other areas, particularly, in the, as you said, in the environmental area or even in healthcare. I mean, you just need to look at the US. The US pays almost twice as much um, for healthcare. That's all the private and public um, funding of healthcare um, and gets a wor- than Australia and gets a worse outcome because the private sector charges a whole lot more and they, they have very little public funding. And that's the case across the world. You look at the countries that have um, a socialised healthcare, um, New Zealand, Australia, Canada, the UK, a lot of the European countries, they all have better outcomes and they all spend less than um, developed countries that have a privatised system. There are sometimes we just have to accept when markets are not the best deal and the government can do a better job. You are listening to Stick Together, a half hour of workers' stories, union news and social justice issues. We are listening to some excerpts from a webinar featuring Matt Goodenough, Senior Economist at the Australia Institute, put on by Nina, the new Economy Network Australia, about the recent federal budget. The last excerpt, quite sobering, 
deals with the environment. Considering the climate crisis and the biodiversity crisis, um, in your opinion, Matt, do the, does the budget do anything significant for the environment, the biodiversity crisis or global warming? No, not not in this budget, certainly. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the government has promised quite a bit. A lot of what they promised doesn't look like, uh, I don't think, will, will work particularly effectively, particularly in biodiversity with their kind of biodiversity markets. I mean, it's a classic case of using a market when it probably isn't appropriate at all. There wasn't a great deal. There, there was some spending. I mean, there's always some spending in this area, but it didn't feel like um, it was a major area of concern. I think I think the government's main focus was on cost of living, in particular for poorer people. I don't think it was particularly focused on climate change or biodiversity or the environment. I mean, the biggest single environmental measure was actually a cost of living measure. That is the household energy upgrades. And, you know, I mean, that was actually sold as a cost of living measure. That will help the environment by reducing people's reliance on on fossil fuel and, and reducing their energy costs. But and yeah, I think even I was shocked to see they were going to spend $1.3 billion on household energy upgrades. I'm the first one to cry out for energy efficiency and demand management. But if you can spend $1.3 billion on that, then surely some of the measures we need to support the foundations of life, biodiversity, land care, et cetera, are also um, more important or equally important. Um, and Claire B has asked a question, I think, that's on the minds of many of us. She has said, um, I'm so worried about the green Wall Street and using carbon offsets to restore land. Can you comment on this for us, Matt? Well, yeah, you know, I mean, when has Wall Street done anything wrong? It's, it's the perfect solution, right? Um, what could possibly go wrong? Uh, look, yeah, look, I mean, the problem with, with biodiversity credits is, is that, you know, what, what, you know, what, what is a koala worth? You know, like, and, and more importantly, if somebody said, you know, if you valued a koala and somebody came along and said, well, yeah, I'll pay that. Can I kill a koala? Is, is that okay? And you go, well, no, you know. I mean, another classic example is um, the Yukon Gorge, right? You know, the, the mining Rio Tinto thought that, you know, ancient Aboriginal rock art was worth less than the iron ore underneath it. And so they blew it up. Um, but, you know, the, quest, the problem wasn't that the Yukon Gorge wasn't valued properly. The the problem was is we were trying to value it in the first place, um, you know, because the moment you value something, what you're saying is, is if I'm a crazy billionaire who, you know, spends billions of dollars on Twitter, say, and I decided I wanted to blow it up, can I come along and give you, what, what amount of money do I need to come along and give you so that I can blow it up? And if you valued something in dollar terms, then effectively you're saying there is an amount of money that I will accept in order for you to blow that up. And, you know, if you've got some crazy billionaire who wants to do that just for the hell of it um, with, with, you know, tens of billions of dollars to splash around, then it's entirely possible that somebody might come along and do that. And so in the, the problem is, is you're trying to value something that, that really, when we get down to it, doesn't have a value. It's, 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 it's too important to value. Um, and, and by kind of engaging in this kind of fake market stuff where we put dollar values on things, all we're doing is setting ourselves up um, to have somebody come along and say, well, yeah, I'll pay that and, and, and I'll produce an outcome that you don't want. Whereas what we should be doing is, well, what is the problem? Well, you know, species are going extinct. Species are becoming endangered. Let's target that. Let's fix the actual problem. Let's not make a fake market um, mm. to kind of solve another problem. Let's actually find out, well, how do we stop, um, uh, let's protect 
um, habitat directly, not, not, not have the private sector go, well, I'm going to tear down this really valuable habitat, but, you know, on the other side of the country somewhere, I'm going to, you know, um, rope off a, a, an area of land of the same size that doesn't have any of that habitat and say, well, that's an offset. It's not really an offset at all. Um, yeah, so, yeah, these kind of fake markets are, are a problem, not a solution. You may find yourself living in a shotgun shack, and you may find yourself in another part of the world, and you may find yourself behind the wheel of a and you may find yourself in a beautiful house with a beautiful wife. And you may ask yourself, well, how did I get here? Letting the days go by. Let the water hold me down. Letting the days go by. Water flowing underground into the blue again. After the money's gone, once in a lifetime. Water flowing underground. And you may Did you enjoy listening to that podcast? 
3CR is a community radio station, and you, the listener, are a part of that community. Right now, it's our Radiothon. We need you to pitch in with a few dollars to keep the station going. We can't do it without you. It's easy. Head to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. Your donations really matter.